Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. This is our inaugural episode, the first episode of the podcast that I will be doing. Now, you who follow my blog, cerebralfaith.blogspot.com, know all about who I am, what I'm about, what my work is about, um... And, and you know what Cerebral Faith stands for. But I, I know that there will be podcast listeners out there, maybe on iTunes or on Anchor or Archive. Maybe you're just discovering this podcast for the first... I mean, not that... Well, maybe you're just discovering me for the first time. Maybe you're just discovering Cerebral Faith for the first time. So before I get to talking about anything, I first want to... Just do an introductory episode for you folks who don't know anything about cerebral faith, don't know anything about Evan Minton, me, and we're going to um, we're going to go through the theme of this podcast. Cerebral faith is a ministry of mine. It's not an official organization or anything. It's, it's something I do off to the side. I am um, what J. Warner Wallace would call a dollar apologist, whereas your million-dollar apologist would be like Dr. William Lane Craig. Of course, well, I'm already getting ahead of myself. Anyway, what is this podcast about? It is about Christian apologetics and Christian theology. Now, what is that? A lot of people know what theology is, or at least they have a basic understanding of it. It's studying the Bible, it's trying to figure out what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches about certain things, and and the attributes of God. So they have a sort of a basic idea of what that is. But not a lot of people know about apologetics. When they say when you say Christian apologetics to them, they think that it means that you're apologizing for being a Christian. I don't blame them. I mean that's what it sounds like. When when people are are known to apologize a lot. They say, they say I'm sorry a lot. Uh, we would say he is a very apologetic person, right? Because he says he's sorry a lot. So if you are a Christian apologist, doesn't that mean that you're apologizing for your faith? Well, no, that's not what it means at all. Christian apologetics <clears throat> is, it derives from the Greek word apologia or apologia. I have I have heard scholars pronounce it both ways. I don't know which one is right. Maybe it's like Caribbean and Caribbean. But it's in the English alphabet, A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A. That's, that's a Greek word. And what that word means is defense or reason. It's um, people who defend their clients in a court of law are giving an apologia for their client's innocence. They defend the truth of their innocence. They give reasons to believe that their client is innocent. And in the same way, what a Christian apologist does 
is defend the Christian faith against those who say that it is not true because of whatever reasons they bring up against it, like the problem of evil. If God exists, why is there so much evil in the world? Or if God is all good and all loving, why does he send people to hell? Um, what about evolution? Doesn't evolution show that God doesn't exist? Uh, things, things like that. And this word, apologia, that, that's basically just what it means. It's a defense. It's a defense of the Christian faith. And that's what I'm going to be doing in this podcast, and that's what I've done on my blog, uh, cerebralfaith.blogspot.com. I give a defense of the Christian faith. Now, there are two kinds of apologetics. There's offensive apologetics and defensive apologetics. Offensive apologetics is giving reasons, arguments for the truth of Christianity. You are giving a positive case for the truth of Christianity. So, for example, the argument from the origin of the universe. Um, Those who uh, have any familiarity with Christian apologetics know this as the Kalam cosmological argument, which has been... It's been around for a while, but it was popularized by the Christian philosopher and apologist Dr. William Lane Craig. Whatever begins, uh, it's a a three-step argument. One, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore the universe has a cause. And the conceptual analysis of what, what, uh, a cause of the universe should have, which, what properties, what attributes a cause of the universe would have, leads you to a description that's a lot like the biblical conception of God. Uh, and this argument, this is, this is actually the topic of the next episode. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the Kalam cosmological argument. But that would be an example of offensive apologetics. I, you're not res- I'm not responding to any skeptic or any objection in particular. I'm just saying, here's a reason to believe that God exists. Now, defensive apologetics would be responding to arguments that say Christianity is not true for reasons X, Y, and Z, like the problem of evil. Uh, If God is all good and all powerful, then why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? That would be an example of defensive apologetics. And that's also, I also plan on having a podcast episode about that in the future, um, we, we would, I would, I'll get into the free will defense, what I call the butterfly effect or the ripple effect and, and how God uses that and in deciding which evils to allow and which evils to permit, uh, I mean, uh, to stop, um, how evil shapes our moral character that God can allow us to go through trials and tribulations because he knows that it'll make us better people and, and other stuff like that. Um, arguing that, uh, defending from scripture and theology and philosophy, uh, that God is still good despite the doctrine of hell. I have a whole book on that, by the way. It's called A Hellacious Doctrine, A Defense of the Biblical Doctrine of Hell. That's also defensive apologetics. Um, showing that uh, re- responding to the evolution issue, either by trying to argue that evolution is not true, that the scientific evidence is against it, uh, or by showing that it's com- compatible with Christianity. Um, 
Those who fall in the former camp would be organizations like Answers in Genesis and Reasons to Believe. The latter camp, which I belong to, the theistic evolutionist, evolutionary creationist, no, please don't turn off the podcast. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, they would, bio, like Biologos, they, they would argue that evolution is compatible with what the Bible teaches about creation and, and God's existence. But that's all, but, you know, no matter how you attack that issue, it's still defensive apologetics. I mean, that's I consider Biologos a whole organization of defensive apologetics against the issue, against the evolution issue. And on this podcast, I'm going to be talking about both kinds of apologetics: offensive apologetics and defensive apologetics. Um, and as I said in the next episode, I'm going to be, well, actually, in the next several episodes, I'm going to be going through. Examples of offensive apologetics. Now, some Christian listeners may have reservations about this whole project of doing apologetics. They say, well, if you have evidence that Christianity is true, then doesn't that remove the need for faith? Isn't faith just believing in something without a reason? Isn't it just, or or isn't it believing in spite of evidence against what you believe? Many Christians think this, and unfortunately a lot of atheists think this as well. But I think that this is a woeful misunderstanding of what it means to have faith. I think faith is a synonym for trust. When we have faith in God, or when we place our faith in Christ, we are placing our trust in Christ. We trust in Him that He is going to forgive us of our sins and save us, um, that He's not lying to us, that He's not going to, when we get to the gates of heaven, He's going to say, ah, I'm just kidding, you should have been Mormons. <laughs> Uh, and then send us to hell. We, we, we trust that God is good to his word, and when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. The, Re- the book of Revelation says that he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, and it's going to be run by totally different physical laws. There's not going to be any mourning or, or crying or sorrow or pain. The former things have passed away, and all of, the, all of those who have been redeemed by him will live in that, that new universe. We don't have any evidence that that's going to be the case, but we we trust that God's good to His word. He's going He's going to do what He says. He's going to create a new universe. He's going to let us live there. We we trust Him. We have faith in Him. That's what faith is. It's it's a synonym for trust. And I think that this is the biblical definition of faith. Now, um, just uh, hold on for a minute. I need to pull up. I need to I need to pull up some scriptures because I, I don't I don't like quoting from scripture from memory because of fear of of misquoting it. Um, it's in the it's in the blind faith article that I wrote on cerebral faith. Okay, here it is. Um, we have several biblical reasons to think that that. Biblical faith is not blind faith. 
for one thing, the the ver the the verse that commands us to do Christian apologetics just destroys this notion. First Peter three fifteen says, "Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Yet do so with gentleness and respect." That's First Peter three fifteen. Always be ready to give an answer or defense to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And the word that is translated defense, or in some translations answer, is the Greek word that I mentioned a few minutes ago, apologia. It's a defense. Well, how do you give a defense of something if you just say, well, the, just have faith? You just got to believe, brother? That's not much of a defense. That's not a defense. The, 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 the whole idea of giving a defense is to present evidence and reasons for why you hold the view that you do. Uh, a lawyer would never say to the judge, you just got to have faith. You just got to believe that my client is innocent. You just, just trust me on this. No, he presents evidence. He presents arguments. He produces eyewitnesses. The, this and and he pokes holes in the prosecutor's uh, arguments for his guilt. This is this is what a defense attorney does. This is what apologists do. This is what Peter is telling us to do in this verse. Or think of another uh, another verse. Second Corinthians ten five. Here Paul says. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So demolishing arguments, demolishing things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, what is that? What would that be like? That would be like refuting the problem of evil. The problem of evil is a pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God in the minds of many people. They just can't believe that evil and God can coexist. Um, showing that either evolution is false, or as some do, or showing that evolution is at least compatible with the Bible would be demolishing an argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. I, as an evolutionary creationist, would do the latter. Um, showing that the Bible is is a historically reliable book and isn't just a book of tales. That would be demolishing an argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. When people say, there's just not enough evidence that Christianity is true, providing the Kalam cosmological argument or showing the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, that would, or the fine-tuning argument, another... Uh, topic for another podcast, those would be things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. You know what would not demolish arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God? Saying, oh, you shouldn't need to have reasons, you just have to have faith. Just believe, brother. You just gotta believe. Yeah, that's not gonna demolish anything. In Jude 1-3, or actually just Jude 3. It's such a short book of the Bible that it does, it's not even divided by chapters. It's just It literally fits on one page. Jude, in verse 3 of this book, Jude urges his readers to defend the faith. Sounds like Christian apologetics. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says that he was appointed to defend the good news. 
In Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, the Apostle Paul says, Live wisely among those who are not believers, and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive, so that you will have the right response for everyone. Sounds to me like Paul is saying the same thing that Peter says in chapter 3, verse 15 of his epistle. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says that he gave the Corinthians proof that he was indeed an apostle from God. What was that proof? Well, Paul says that the proof was that he performed many signs and wonders when he was with them. If God really wanted us to have blind faith, why would Paul give evidence for his credibility as an apostle? In 2 Corinthians 13.3, Paul says that he's willing to offer even the Corinthians even more proof that Christ speaks through him. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold the phone, Paul. Hold the phone. Don't you know that if you offer the Corinthians proof that Christ speaks through you, that they won't have legitimate faith? Why would you derive them of the opportunity of having faith? Well, maybe faith isn't what people think it is. I'm reminded of the... um of Inigo Montoya from the movie The Princess Bride where this this other character I can't remember his name he kept using the word inconceivable and Inigo at one point says you keep using that word I do not think it means what you think it means <laughs> and I would say that to people who just say you just you don't need evidence you just got to have faith you just got to have faith faith you keep using that word I do not think it means what you think it means um, I think probably the, the, the most powerful biblical evidence that having evidence for God's existence and having faith in him are not mutually exclusive is found in the Exodus account. Exodus, uh, you know, uh, this, in the context of this passage, the, Moses has just led the Israelites out of Egypt. The uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians have suffered plague after plague after plague after plague. Um, and finally, Pharaoh's just like, get out of here already. <laughs> I've had enough. Um, and regarding those plagues and miracles that God unleashed upon Egypt to force Pharaoh's hand, the, the books, uh, chapter 14, verse 31 says, quote, they, when the Israelites saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. And here, here's the crucial point. It says, they put their faith in him and his servant Moses. Okay, so the Israelites had just seen an overabundance of evidence, not just for God's existence, but that God was on their side and that he was helping them to escape slavery and bondage in Egypt. And yet they put their faith in him. So what does this imply? It implies that having evidence and having faith are not mutually exclusive. They trusted God. In fact, that's, what, that's how some translations render it. It says they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Or uh, I think the King James renders it, they believed the Lord and, and in Moses, his servant. Now, not only does it say that they placed their faith in him after they had all this evidence 
but it says they placed their faith in Moses as well. Now, surely, if you have now, surely, if the Israelites had evidence for anyone's existence, it was Moses. I mean, he was standing right. He, he was. He was. He was walking ahead of everyone. He parted. He lifted his staff and parted the Red Sea. They couldn't see God, and but they could see Moses. <laughs> So they had, they 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 knew God by His effects. In fact, that's how we know God by His effects: the effects of the origin of the universe, the fine tuning, the um, objective uh, moral law written on our hearts, which we'll get into in future podcasts. But I'm just saying clearly in Ex- Exodus fourteen thirty one says that the Israelites put their faith in God. And yet they had evidence that God existed and was helping them escape Egypt. And they especially had evidence that Moses existed, and yet the text says they placed their faith in him as well. So given this piece of scriptural evidence, we know that a Christian can base his belief that Christianity is true on the basis of evidence and still be able to have faith in God. Faith means the same thing as the word trust. That's not just my definition. That's what, I mean, the Bible doesn't explicitly state it, but it's what is entailed by all of the biblical evidence I've just gone through. I often like to say, faith is when someone is holding you over a ledge and knowing in your heart that not only are they not going to let you fall, but they're going to pull you up to safety. You know that the person holding on to you exists. You have powerful evidence that that person exists, Yet all the evidence in the world is not going to make you trust that person, uh, to, to trust that they will save your life. Um, the apologist, um, head of crossexamine.org, Frank Turek, he has a funny illustrate. he has a funny way of getting this across. He says, uh, I had evidence that my wife, that, um, that my wife, before I married her, would make a good wife. But all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to place my faith in her. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. <laughs> um, yeah, you could have ev- you have evidence for, you know, the woman you, you are in love with, you have evidence for her existence, but that doesn't mean that you're going to trust in her. It doesn't, and it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to enter into a loving relationship with her. The same is true with God. We can have ev- we can have all the evidence in the world that He exists, and yet we could still have faith. If you don't, if you don't trust that God is going to do what He says He's going to do, if you don't trust that God is going to um, keep His promises, then. You may believe that he exists on the basis of the origin and fine-tuning of the universe or on the evidence or the historical reliability of the Bible or whatever, but you're still not, you still don't have faith. But by contrast, you can have you can have evidence you can have all that evidence and you can still have faith. You can trust God. Faith is trust. Um so apologetics is biblical. Um, it doesn't contradict the idea of us having faith, and we actually have two. We actually have a command, two commands, to do apologetics. We have First Peter three fifteen. We have Second Corinthians ten five, and we have well, uh, actually no, we have three. We, we, Jude verse three. But we also have some uh, examples in the Bible, in the historical records, 
of the apostles doing apologetics and even Jesus doing apologetics. Nor the uh, Norman Geisler has a whole book called The Apologetics of Jesus. I hope I hope to read. I haven't read it. I hope to read it. I want to read it. But if 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 he's argue, I've read the description of his book, and it seems to me like he's saying the same thing that I said in a blog post I wrote called um, "Jesus Christ Did Apologetics." But the apostles did apologetics. Just turn to Acts chapter seventeen. You will see. You will see that. Paul did apologize. Let me pull up Acts 17 on the Bible Gateway website because, like I said before, I hate quoting from Scripture from memory because I, I, I could I could butcher it. So I want to make sure that I'm actually reading it. In, in Acts chapter 17, Paul went to Thessalonica. And it says in verse 2, Verse 1 says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphol Am Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, verse 2, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining, this is verse 3, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. That's, that's Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. But that's not all. In several verses later, Paul is in Berea with Silas. And, well, this, is, this isn't actually um, an example of Paul doing apologetics, but it is an example of of blind faith being seen as lesser than an evidence-based faith. In, in, in chapters 10 through uh, 13, it says, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 to, I, I'm sorry, 12. I overshot it by one verse. Now, these Bereans, they are said to have been, to be, to have been of more noble character than other converts that Paul made. Why? Because they took what Paul said about Jesus, about him being the Messiah and what he did, and they looked at the Old Testament, and they said, "Did Jesus actually fulfill these prophecies? Is this what the Bible? Is this what the the um what they called the Tanakh, the Old Testament? Uh, is this what the is this what it was was said that the Messiah would do? They didn't just take Paul's word for it; they researched it to make sure that he wasn't misquoting the Old Testament or anything like that. That he was." He was, uh, that Jesus, what Paul said Jesus did, he act, actually matches up with Old Testament prophecies. And the, the author of Acts here says they were of more noble character because they did that. Because they did not have blind faith. Um, now, as for Paul doing apologetics, you go on downward in the same chapter, Acts 17, um, and he is in Athens. And here in... 
chapter 16, I mean, at chapter 17, verses 16 to 18, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. Again, he reasoned with them. Other translations say he debated them. He didn't just have a conversation with them. He got into a full-blown argument with them. Which, by the way, is not the same thing as a quarrel. We, we should never quarrel with people. Um, so, this is another example of Paul doing apologetics. And also, I want to point out that Paul's tactics here, with the Jews in Thessalonica and the uh, pagans in Athens, his tactics were different. In, the, in Thessalonica, in the synagogue, Paul reasoned from the Old Testament. He said, Jesus did this, and it fulfilled Old Testament messianic prophecies. He, this proves that Jesus is the Messiah. But in Athens, he didn't do that. Why? Because he knew that the pagans didn't care about the Old Testament. They didn't believe the Old Testament was inspired. So what does he do? He uses other arguments. He appeals to natural theology. He appeals to... Um, he even quotes their own poets. He uses sources and arguments that they would accept. And that's what we do when we... Uh, that's what we modern apologists do when we uh, use natural theology. We, we, the Kalam argument, the fine-tuning argument, the moral argument, um, the argument from irreducible complexity, the minimal facts case for Jesus' resurrection, all of which, by the way, again, I'm going to talk about in a future podcast. Um, but Acts 17 is, is just... It's loaded with not only examples of apologetics, but with um, it shows two. It shows Paul doing apologetics in two vastly different ways, depending on his audience. That's what we should do. That's what we Christians should do when we're we we don't witness to atheists, Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, agnostics. We don't witness to all of these people in exactly the same way. We change our tactics when I argue for the deity of Christ. I can presuppose the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible if I'm talking to a Jehovah's Witness, because he shares that presupposition. If I'm talking to an atheist, though, I'll have to resort to some historical methodology to show that Jesus had a divine self-understanding, and that he rose from the dead, and that this resurrection vindicated his understanding. God would not raise a heretic and a blasphemer. Again... Uh, topic of a future podcast. So apologetics is biblical. We have biblical grounds for doing it. We have a command to do it. And it doesn't conflict with the idea, the concept of faith in God. Now, I have already run 30 minutes into this. I, I plan for the introduction of this podcast to be short. But I guess I'm just talkative. Um, <clears throat> now, let me talk about myself for a minute and how I got into apologetics, how I got into defending the faith. It happened on uh, the 4th of July back in 2010. I was a relatively new Christian. I had I'd given my life over to Christ in, in um, the summer of 2009, so I'd only been a, uh, I had only been saved for about a year, and I wanted to share my faith with 
non-believers. I wanted to bring others to Christ. Ever since I myself got saved, I've had a severe evangelistic zeal. My heart is on fire for those who don't know Christ. And I would do that with people in uh, live conversations, and I would do it with people in conversations over the internet. And I... I was talking to an atheist on Twitter. He was very belligerent, very condescending, very very aggressive. Uh, he, he kept telling me that I was brainwashed by my parents, even though he didn't know a single thing about my upbringing. He kept telling me that I was um, an idiot for believing that, Chris, that the Bible was true. Um... And he, he asked some hard questions that I just couldn't respond to. One of those questions was the thesis of my first book that came out in 2016, Inference to the One True God, Why I Believe in Jesus Instead of Other Gods. He said, why, why do you believe that the Christian God exists while you deny the existence of Zeus, Thor, Athena, Aphrodite? You know, why, why do you believe the Bible instead of the Quran or the Hindu scriptures or the Buddhist scriptures? Why do you believe the Christian scriptures over these other scriptures? And I... I couldn't give any answer. Well, I mean, I I talked about my religious experience and had I ha and how I had a radical encounter with God and how He had changed me from the inside out, uh, all, practically overnight. Um, but He tried to explain this away from through uh, neuroscience. He tried to say that it was just a chemical reaction that happened in my head at a time in my life in which I needed it to happen and and so my experience wasn't veridical and that 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 was the only arrow in my quiver and after I shot it and he deflected it I was like I don't have anything left and his explanation seemed pretty reasonable I was beginning to doubt that maybe my experience was veridical and why do why do I believe in Jesus why do I believe in Yahweh in, instead of the polytheistic gods? or Why do I accept the Bible instead of, say, the Quran? And when I realized that I had no epistemological foundation for why I believed what I did, I, it sent me into a period of deep, severe doubt. Um, it was... It, I, I had some dark nights of the soul there. Um, but... I, I thought of a passage from Mark 9, and in the context, Jesus comes to a man who has a, a, ch a son who is possessed by a devil, disciples couldn't cast it out, and the father of the boy comes to Jesus and says, I, your disciple, my son is possessed by a demon, it, it, it is constantly trying to destroy him, your disciples tried to cast it out but they couldn't do it. Help me if you can. And Jesus said, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. And then, in verse 26 of Mark 9, uh, the Father says, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And so I, I prayed. I prayed to Jesus. I said, Lord, help me with my unbelief. If you exist, if the Bible's true, if Christianity is true, then I know that you don't want me to fall away, and I'm falling away. I know that if I know that you, the Bible says you want all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's not your will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And therefore, 
I am a person, therefore logically, you you want me to be saved and to have the knowledge of the truth. So I need you to help me. I need you to help me to to don't to not stop believing. God answered that prayer initially through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, but also through apologetics. It was just oh, I don't know. Um it was a month later. In that same year, just one month later, in August, it was an August night, I was scrolling through my Facebook book timeline, and a friend of mine had posted a video. It was called The Case for a Creator. Someone had taken Lee Strobel's movie, The Case for a Creator, based off the book of the same name, and uploaded it. And I watched it. And Lee Strobel and several experts in philosophy and science uh, were talking about the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the complexity of DNA and of the cell, and I was just blown away by what I was hearing. I never heard, I grew up in the church, but I never heard any of this. Now, I mean, I say I grew up in the church, but I didn't give my life to Christ until I was 17. I was sort of... Um, I had belief that, but not belief in. As I said earlier, you can believe that God exists and still not have trust in Him, still not have, still not be in a saving relationship with Him. Yeah, I believe God existed even before I got saved. I just didn't have anything to do with Him. I was functionally equivalent to a deist, <laughs> even though my theology was not deist. But anyway... I mean, that that just totally revitalized my faith. I'm like, yes, this stuff is true, and these are the reasons why. And so I bought Lee Strobel's books. I bought The Case for Christ. I bought The Case for Creator. I bought The Case for Faith. I read them uh, over and over and over again. And I'm like, the, the, the Christianity has a lot. It has a very solid evidential foundation, and it can withstand the toughest of scrutiny. As uh, as my friend Seth Baker said in the uh, introduction of the podcast, Christianity can withstand the toughest of scrutiny. And I'm like, gosh, people have got to know about this. Unfortunately, while I got the gist of what I read and what I saw in the video, I wasn't able to articulate it very well. Um, so I would instead point people to resources. Like, I would take the, the YouTube video, The Case for a Creator, and I would, to, to the atheist I was witnessing to, I'd say, hey, you gotta look at this. You gotta look at it. It, 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 it he taught Lee Strobel and, and William Lane Craig and, and, um, uh, Robin Collins and all these guys. They talk about evidence for God's existence. And they either wouldn't watch it or they would just make some comment, oh, that's not science. That's not evidence. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a brilliant refutation. <laughs> of a, uh, just dismiss it. Just say, "Oh, that's not evidence. That's not science." And uh, Greg Kokel would say, "What do you mean by that? Or how did you come to that conclusion?" But they either wouldn't look at the at the resources I, I would point them to, or they would just say, "Oh, well, that's not that's not good enough evidence." Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't defend the faith on my own. I couldn't witness to them. And, and whenever I tried to witness to someone who didn't believe, I, I encountered hard questions. 
not just atheists, but I, even some uh, adherence to Judaism I encountered. Because, again, I was very new Christian. I didn't know the Old Testament as well as I should have. So I, I couldn't even make the messianic case for Christ back then. Uh, I, I was just really terrible at it. And whenever I would have these encounters, I would go into my room and I would pray for these people. And I would say, Lord, please send someone. Please send someone to these to show them the evidence for your handiwork in creation. Show them the historical evidence that your word is true. That the Bible is historically reliable. It has been reliably preserved through the centuries. And that your son Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Send someone like William Lane Craig. Send someone like Lee Strobel. Send someone like Frank Turek. Uh, into their path to talk to them. And after a few times of praying this way, I felt in my heart, I felt God say, I want you to be the one to, sh to tell them this stuff. Now, I am not one of those people who say, oh, I heard a word from the Lord today. You should marry uh, Susan. <laughs> I'm not one of those people who pretend that they're a modern-day prophet. I do believe that God can speak subtly to our hearts. And if he ever spoke to my heart, it was on that night. He said, I want you to be the one. And I was like, God, you've got the wrong guy. Because I, I could barely articulate any... I'm like, I can't understand all of this scientific stuff and all of this philosophical jargon. And There's just so much I need to know and so much I need to remember. I, I was like, I can't. I just can't. I was like Moses when, when God appeared to him in the burning bush. I was like, please, don't, do, don't send me. Send someone else. I have, I have these issues. I'm too stupid to understand physics and cosmology and, and philosophy. Send someone else. <laughs> um, but I think it was the, next, the very next day. Uh, it wasn't very long after I, I had that experience that I saw a picture on Facebook that was captioned, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And that really struck me. God does not call the qualified, he qualifies the called. I knew that if I put in the effort, and if I studied hard and trained hard, I could learn this material and repeat it back to people in my witness encounters. I could, I could, and so I resolved to read all of my apologetics books over and over and over and over again to burn the information into my mind. I listened to podcasts and lectures. I watched debates between uh, Christian apologists and atheists. I looked at Lee Strobel's videos on his website, leestrobel.com. Uh, my mom helped me. She she got me several apologetics books for uh, for my 19th birthday, such as... Um, such as Neil Mommins, Who is Agent X? Proving that science and logic show it's more rational that God exists. We, William Lane Craig's On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision. Uh, Frank Turek and Norman Geisler's I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And Doug Powell's The Holman Quick Source Guide to Christian Apologetics. And she also got me the Apologetic Study Bible. And, and, and you know, it just now occurred to me.
It didn't occur to me until just this very moment while I'm talking that that was probably the hand of God. That she just happened to get the books that were perfect for beginners. Introductory works. I mean, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. On guard, the, the Lee Strobel's Case 4 series, Doug Powell's uh, The Holman Quick Source Guide to Christian Apologetics. All of these are very introductory level. They don't, they don't go over people's heads. Uh, that, but I read these books over and over and over again. My copy of On Guard uh, is falling apart. I don't. My copy of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is falling apart because of overuse. Um, my my copy of The Case for Christ and Neil Mammon's book they're they're holding up pretty well, but even they show signs of wear and tear. Um, Hugh Ross's book, The Creator and the Cosmos, it has already had pages drop out of it. <laughs> um, and I listened to, I pretty much got rid of all the music on my MP3 player, and I just filled it up with podcasts and debates and lectures and sermons, and I just developed all of this as much as I could to master this material, and I've been doing that ever since. Uh, I'm still, in fact, I'm still learning. You, you, your education in any area never gets finished. You're never going to hit the bottom and say, well, I know everything I need to know. But at this point, after after seven years of, of, of study, I know enough to hold my own in most circumstances uh, to be able to, uh, to be an effective witness. Um, in 2012, I decided to start Cerebral Faith. It, my, it was, uh, it's a blog... And my first article was on the resurrection of Jesus. I had I have since deleted it because it wasn't very well written. I w I wasn't as good of a writer as I am now. I really sucked at writing. Uh, I mean, what I didn't you know? It's not that what I what did what I said wasn't good. It's just that it wasn't it wasn't good writing. It was written poorly. I've I've written material since then that is much more professional looking um in fact I, i've never taken a writing class my writing skills improve just because i read a lot and i i know how books and and articles are supposed to look and how they're supposed to be formatted and and how you're supposed it's just i i call it the monkey see monkey do effect <laughs> um but i this blog has been running for um several years now started it in august of 2012 uh, I've written, I've written two books. I've got one book coming out this month, and I've argued with countless atheists and agnostics and adherents to some of the cultic views, like Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, yeah, so that's that's who Evan Minton is and how he got into apologetics. Um, now, finally, th I want to now talk about some of the, some of the, um, the reasons I decided to start a podcast. I, I thought some people might be thinking, well, if you already have a blog post, you already have a platform on which to get your message out, you've, you've written some books, and, you, so, and, and so why start a podcast? Well, there are several reasons. One reason is that there, uh, there are people who really, really hate to read, my dad is one of them. My dad 
just hates to read. Just hates it. He even hates reading short news articles. He hasn't read many of my blog posts, uh, not because he does he isn't proud of me, not because he doesn't uh, agree with what I'm saying, but just because he hates to read. Um, I had a friend who he he passed away recently. He went to be with the Lord, but uh, he 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 didn't like reading because he was dyslexic. He he had a hard time. He, he, reading. He had to put more effort into it than other people did. And I'm sure that my uh, my late friend and uh, my dad are, are not alone in this regard. There's probably a lot of people who would rather listen to a podcast or watch a, a video of someone talking than to open up a book and and read it, or to even open up an article and read it. And so this podcast is meant to be... Uh, well, at least for the people who just absolutely refuse to read, it's meant to be a substitute for them, but for people who do read my blog posts, it's meant to supplement them. Maybe you don't have, uh, maybe you don't have enough time to read an article I wrote on this subject, but download my, download a podcast episode and play it in your car on the way to work or something, or, um, I know that there are, um, I have some Christian friends who are apologists and they defend the faith and they don't have a lot of time to read. They they're they're on the road all the time. Just they're d- delivering stuff. They're they're on the road constantly. But they consume material. They listen to audiobooks and they listen to podcasts and debates and lectures on their MP3 player plugged up to their their truck's speakers. And so this goes out to all you truckers out there. Keep on trucking and learn some apologetics while you're at it. Uh, deliver those goods, and then maybe you'll deliver some theological goods to people in your future encounters. Um, it's also meant to expand the number of people I reach. Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, some of you people listening to this, you may not have even heard of me before. You may not have heard of apo- of not, not just apologetics, but not you you didn't even know Cerebral Faith was a website until just now. So, some of you who listen to these podcasts, this may be the first time you ever hear an uh, a discussion on the Kalam cosmological argument, the argument from cosmic fine-tuning, the minimal facts for Jesus' resurrection. What's that? What's a minimal fact? How does that prove that Jesus rose from the dead? What, what is all that? You, you, you never heard of any of this stuff before. You haven't even been to my website. It's, ex, it's, I, I can reach more people with the gospel and the, re, and the evidence supporting it if I have more than just one platform. I'm I'm still going to blog. I'm not going to shut down the blog, but I'm going to supplement my blog with a podcast. Um Also, I plan on um well this go- this dovetails into the final topic I wanted to talk about in this podcast episode. Uh some of the topics of the upcoming episodes. Uh, a lot of these podcast episodes, I didn't intend for this one to... I'm looking at my recorder right now. It's going on 50 minutes and 38 seconds. I did not mean for it to be this long. Some of them will be this long. But some of them may be 30 minutes, 25 minutes, 20 minutes. Just depends on how long it takes me to, to say what I need to say. But I, they definitely will not go over 60 minutes. If it gets to 60 minutes, I'm just going to say, Hey, come back next week. We'll have part two. But... um. 
I'm going to so a lot of these podcast episodes is just going to be me talking just like this. I'm just going I'm going to be talking about the evidence for Christianity, the arguments for God's existence, the problem of evil, the problem of hell, evolution uh, is evolution compatible with the Bible. Going to be talking about Molinism. No, that has nothing to do with moles. <laughs> um but I'm I'm also going to have guests on this program and I've already got two I've already arranged to have uh well actually three three people on two podcasts. One is a they are siblings. They run they are microbiologists and they run a lab together. Their names are Angela Fugate and Rihanna Allen. And then in another podcast episode I'm going to interview a man named David Parrish. Uh, who I uh, spent some time with in Vi- in Denver this past uh, November at the Evangelical Theological Society conference. Um, he has a very fascinating testimony on how apologetics helped him. I'm not going to give anything away, but it, it's not the usual, oh, it saved my faith and, and it, it kept me from falling away. Yeah, there is that in there too, but it's it's more than that. He It did more for him than just intellectually satisfy his his questions so going to have going to have uh, guests talking about their books and their articles and and um maybe you know their testimonies of how they came to Christ and, and uh um and or maybe some unique arguments that they formulated um so I'm going to have some guests on here too. And I hope that you will enjoy it and I hope that you will learn it. And if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian listening to this, don't be like I was. If you feel that God is calling you to reach out to unbelievers, learn this material. Some of this some of this stuff may seem very complex to you at first. I know it was for me. It was for me. Some of this, I, I was look, looking at Big Bang cosmology and looking at the fine-tuning of the strong nuclear force constant, and I was like, ah, my head hurts. But if you put forth the effort, if you apply yourself, if you really put forth the effort, you can learn this stuff. If, it, if a dummy like me can do it, you can do it. <laughs> I mean, I... I, I I still don't consider myself an intellectual. Uh, I just I'm just a guy who did a, who has done a lot of reading and a lot of listening and listen to these podcasts. Listen to them over and over and over again. Like I used to listen to the 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 stuff that I downloaded from Apologetics three fifteen. Uh, get my books. Get the books of some of the people I've mentioned, like Lee Strobel and William Lane Craig. Read, do what I did. Read them until they're falling apart. I have a blog post on my website called How to Become a Self-Taught Apologist. Uh, I want you to go to the, read that blog and, and apply some of the advice that I give. Because, like Jay Warner Wallace said, we don't need another million-dollar apologist. We don't need another philosopher with three PhDs uh, or another scientist with... Three PhDs. We don't need 
yes, the, these are important. These are very important to have people like William Lane Craig and Alvin Plantinga and Richard Swinburne and Hugh Ross and um, and Gary Habermas and N.T. Wright. We do need million-dollar apologists like these, but we need a million-dollar apologists. Uh, as my friend Zachary Lawson likes to say, the difference between a, a dollar apologist and a million dollars apologist is like the difference. Uh, it, it's like it's like uh, the difference between your friend who can play the guitar really well and Led Zeppelin. That's the difference between a, a dollar apologist and a million dollars. Uh, William Lane Craig is Led Zeppelin. I am your friend who knows how to play the guitar really well, and you should learn how to play the guitar really well. You should you should shred those arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Uh, listen to these podcast episodes over and over and over. Uh, read my books, read the books of others over and over and over. Really master this material so that you can, as First Peter 3.15 says, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, yet do so with gentleness and respect. And for you unbelievers who are listening out there, atheists, you need to listen to this stuff. You may disagree with it, you may find problems with my arguments, but here's the thing, if Christianity is true, then if you do not place your faith in Christ, you're going to hell. It would behoove you to at least look into why I believe that it is true. What, the reasons that undergird my conclusion that Christianity is true. As C.S. Lewis so wonderfully put it, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And with that, I will stop this podcast episode. Thank you for listening. Come back next week, in which I will talk about the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence. Did the universe have a beginning? And if so, did it have a cause? And if so, why suppose that that cause is God? See you next week.